All right. Hello, dear listeners. Before we get started on this episode, we have a special announcement. Lily? Yes. We have two announcements, actually. First off, today is Sir's one-year anniversary. Huzzah! Happy birthday to us. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Secondly, we are launching a Patreon page. So for those of you who do not know what Patreon is, it's just a website that makes it very easy for people to support their favorite content creators by giving them a little bit of money. Really, a little bit. As in, you can give $1 every month, or you can give less than $1. But I think that that is cruel and unusual. So there's lots of people (laughs) who make high-quality content that you enjoy for free. Like a podcast, perhaps? Yes, why I'm so glad you pointed that out, Smith. (laughs) For example, a podcast, like Sir. Yeah, we've done a lot of stuff this past year, and we wanted to do more stuff this next year. But as you probably know, doing stuff costs money, and doing cool stuff costs even more money. And doing cool stuff well costs even more money. For example getting really nice microphones so our little voices softly purr or purr into your waiting earbuds. Right. So if you like the show and you would like to support it, um, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash she's in Russia. Uh, the link is in the episode description as well. And as a thank you for becoming a Sir patron, we've got some little bonuses that we will hand send to an address of your choice. So yes, go there. That is patreon.com. Slash, she's in Russia. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Alrighty, now back to our regular scheduled programming. This is the meat of the podcast. Have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 This shit feel like I won't ever make it home. Graphics backed up, I got to get off of this road. Flipped on the gas, I swear to God, I'm in my zone. From St. Petersburg and Brooklyn, this is She's in Russia. I'm Smith. And I'm Lily. Today we have the weather for you. <laughs> Mostly cloudy with a chance of gender. Who do, who do we have on today? Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Alyssa Klotz about early Soviet domestic labor and post-Stalin discourses on aging. Alyssa is an assistant professor at the European University, and we'll just go ahead and let her introduce herself more fully. I'm Alyssa Klotz. I'm Assistant Professor of Soviet History at the European University in St. Petersburg. I'm originally from Perm, Russia, or as we call it, Perm. And I first I did my PhD here, and then here in Russia, and then I also did a PhD at Rutgers. And now I'm back. Okay, um, I can ask the first question. Um, so, so in this chapter of this domestic labor book that you have that's good when is that book coming out well the chapter are you asking about the chapter because the chapter is already out it's part of the paul grave handbook on women and gender in 20th century russia but the i see yeah 
but I'm actually working on turning my dissertation into a book. I don't know when it's coming out, but I'm hoping to finish the book manuscript next academic year. I'm going to be a um, fellow at University of Tel Aviv. So hopefully I'll be lonely enough to finish the book. <laughs> oh, okay, I see. So yeah, so you you shared with us this chapter that's already been published. And and in this chapter you that's about domestic labor, you sort of lay out these four different periods in the early Soviet era that were defined by policy and public opinion about domestic laborers. And I'm wondering, would you just kind of describe what those four periods were? Well, sure. Um, well, I started working on this topic because of this paradox. You know, before 1917, domestic service was decried as a thinly veiled form of slavery. It was a symbol of inequality, of exploitation of men by men. But then in the Soviet period, it was not just tolerated. It was legal, it was publicly discussed, and eventually it was embraced as an integral part of socialist economy. Um, so I started looking into how the attitudes to domestic labor evolved over time. And I saw this distinct period. So we have their very early period right after the revolution during the, the Civil War. And that was a very radical time when the idea was that we're just going to defeat the whites and then build communism. And at that time, the attitude was that domestic labor, pay domestic labor and domestic labor in general should be things of the past. We should collectivize labor, emancipate women, build all those creches and public cafeterias. Then, of course, that never happened. And we move in into the second period, which is the time called the new economic policy. Because the country was completely trashed during the Civil War, the Bolsheviks had to introduce elements of the market like some private trade and also private employment. And so at that time, domestic servants seemed to be well as this temporary step, like one of those elements of the new economic policy. And domestic uh, workers, and they were kind of reimagined as domestic workers. We don't have any servants in the Soviet Union, but we have workers, part of the working class. So domestic workers were to be educated, their class consciousness had to be developed. But then we have the third period, which is the time of the first five-year plan. So in 1927, there is the decision to start forced industrialization and collectivization of agriculture. And the idea is that finally we're done with NEP, with the new economic policy. Now we're really building uh, socialism in earnest. And we're not going to have any servants and we need to transfer these women from domestic sphere into a labor force and women were recruited uh, into factories. But then everything changes by mid-1930s and very rapidly actually in the course of like one year you have a publication that says domestic service will disappear in the future and less than a year later you have an article saying those who say that are immature leftists pay domestic labor as part of socialist economy. And I argue that is because the domestic sphere is reimagined at this time. There's a lot of literature on so-called conservative turn of the 1930s. Abortion becomes illegal, homosexuality is criminalized, um, there are a lot of pro-natalist policies. 
So I think that the material I work with, the history of domestic labor, actually shows that the whole space of the home is reimagined as a productive space, a space that directly contributes to the labor effort. Because for workers to perform in the factory, they need to come back to a warm meal, sleep in a clean bed, and domestic workers should do that. And also domestic workers are responsible for raising children. So I guess these are the, the four periods that you mentioned and I talk about in the article. Yeah, so there's a, there's a contradiction, right, between like, maybe we can talk about it by, um, so it changes over time, that's important in those four periods, but just like the distinction between the housewife, for example, and the domestic worker, why is one more or less productive or like what, is, is that mm-hmm. distinction part, that distinction is part of the larger contradiction, right? Right. Well, let me start with the other contradiction. So I do not question the Bolsheviks desire to emancipate women. I think they really want, believed in that and they thought they were doing that. But this sincere desire ran into the limits of their very gendered vision of the society. So ideally, we want to make labor communal to have all these uh, public laundromats and cafeterias. But since we don't have the resources, someone have to perform this domestic labor. And who's going to do that? Women. So there was no desire to kind of redistribute labor within the family to have men more involved in domestic labor. So, of course, if women have to do that, but at the same time, especially uh, starting with the first five-year plan, we also need women's hands in the factory, the famous double burden of the Soviet system. So the question is what we're going to do. We need to decide which hands are more valuable for the state. And one of the very important concepts is the concept of socially useful labor. So domestic workers' labor becomes socially useful as long as it frees up the labor of more qualified women. You know, women who can work in factories or as white-collar workers. This creates this gendered hierarchy of labor. Of course, the, first of all, it's gendered because it's for women, but then there's also the class dimension because the domestic workers were mostly newcomers from villages that migrated into the city. But then also some of them were the so-called former people, you know, the former elites who lost everything, and a lot of them were disenfranchised. And so they, you know, a former duchess or maybe a former nun could only sustain themselves by working as domestic workers. So this chapter deals a lot with like the minutia of domestic labor policy. For instance, you describe a policy that dictates that housewives with servants have to sew a full garment per day versus those without who only have to sew half of one. And Lily is often like reprimanding me or reminding me like just because the Soviet states like had a specific policy or stance doesn't mean that that like reflected the reality of day-to-day people. So I'm wondering like do you have a sense of how these sorts of hyper-specific policies like how much they translated into the day-to-day like were women religiously sewing a full garment per day if they didn't have a service? And, and can you also just explain that um, the context for that a little bit more like it's who is ha- who has to sew what really quick because it's kind of funny. <laughs> oh, you're referring to the laws that were introduced uh, under war communism. So the, again, this concept of socially useful labor, everyone had to labor. Those who were not involved in socially useful labor were to provide it, you know, were to be mobilized. 
and even those who did work had to provide additional labor for the state. There were several laws regulating them, and there was the, also the sewing duty that, of course, was only for women because, you know, men biologically cannot sew, as we all know very well. <laughs> <laughs> Those big, meaty figures. I know, right? Yeah. What are you going to do? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's only women, but there was a distinction. If it was a housewife, at that point, most women who were not in agriculture or not, you know, in factory and the second segment wasn't very large. So they were mostly housewives. We we're talking about urban women. Housewives who were managing their house without a servant were expected to sew one half. And those who had a servant were equated to non-laboring elements and were to sew a full item of clothing per day, so twice as much. But domestic servants were to sew only a quarter of an item of clothing per day. So if we assume that the domestic servant and the housewife are doing the same amount of work or, you know, the same kind of work, the domestic worker owed less labor to the state than the, than the housewife because that was paid labor. There's an important distinction between paid and unpaid domestic labor. So because you're a housewife, you're not getting paid, you're not a worker, you kind of owe more, you're less productive. And if you're a domestic worker, you are more of a worker, and that's why you owe less additional labor for the state. I think that's the, the bottom line. Right, right. But before we get into the, to like what Smith's question is, I just like, just to go into that distinction of paid and unpaid, is that is that just like a pure Marxist principle coming in? Like, why is it defined by being paid rather than like the actual content of the work or something? Well, paid labor makes you a worker and it kind of fosters your class consciousness. If you don't receive a salary, you're not part of the proletariat and you don't have class consciousness. Class consciousness just means being aware of being part of the proletariat or yes, being part of the class. pretty much. And okay. being aware of the fact that you're being exploited. <laughs> And, okay. and being aware that you're part of the proletariat is like extremely important for the success of communism. Is that why be, having class consciousness is like exponentially more valuable than the actual production of the garment? Well, yes, exactly. Because creating this new Soviet person, which was one of the central goals of building socialism, of the whole socialist project. So creating this new Soviet person was and the central element of it was fostering class consciousness you have to be so you have to be collectivist that's one aspect and you also have to be consciously involved in building socialism and you cannot be consciously involved in building socialism if you don't have class consciousness right and you can't have class consciousness if you're a housewife no no. Well, I mean, it depends on what you can be a housewife in a noble family or you can be a nep woman or, you know, a bourgeois woman. Then you have class consciousness. You're bourgeois. But to be proletarian, you need to work for wages. Right. Right. OK. So wait, so just a little bit back to Smith's question about do, do you have any idea of how um, uh, Did they actually sell yeah, those how, things? Yeah, how that worked or how it was like measured? or yeah. To be honest, I have no idea what happened, <laughs> you know, 
how much they actually sold because this is the time of the civil war it's really poorly documented the country was in complete chaos they didn't even have enough paper to write their you know reports or whatever i don't even know how many domestic workers were actually working families at the time because the country was in so much turmoil but i have more documents for later period and later laws that regulated paid domestic labor like the law of 1926 it was actually the only law that regulated paid domestic labor until 1987 so it is the law and i can talk more about it if, if you're interested yeah, yeah. sure Oh, okay. So, as I said, right after the revolution, the idea was that domestic service is exploitative in its nature. So domestic servants, even when they're domestic workers, they are in an equal relationship. So the goal of the state, or the, um, the obligation of the socialist state or the Bolshevik state, was to protect them, protect their rights against their employers. And the idea was that people who employ domestic workers... There's something wrong with them. They're either bourgeois or their wives are failing in their duties. And so when the state trade union was starting to develop this law, the idea was to create another layer of protection for domestic workers. But when the law was actually brought up to the Commissariat of Labor and all the other institutions that were involved, it turned out that this attitude, the domestic service was fundamentally exploitative, was not the unquestionable party line anymore. And the law that actually was adopted in 1926 actually deprived domestic workers of some of their rights, and most importantly, the right for the eight-hour workday. So, it actually, uh, so the law said that a domestic worker can work no longer than 192 hours in a month which is fine it makes eight hours per day but these hours can be distributed in the way the employer sees fit and what's more important there was no obligation to pay overtime unless it was specifically stated in the contract and there was a big problem because if you look at the actual court cases and this is how i'm getting to your question about what actually happened if you look at the actual conflicts that arose between domestic workers and the employees, where they were often about pay over for overtime and you know ex what we would we would call exploitation, you know, twelve hour workdays and things like that. So in the earlier period, in the early nineteen twenties, domestic workers would pretty much get what what they asked for because you know you got to understand so in this kind of conflicts that happened within the household you don't have any evidence so the domestic worker said i worked so much i didn't receive anything and the employer would come and say well no she she worked less and i paid her and he gave her a dress because there was no proof that um the whoever was uh, trying to resolve this conflict either the union or the court they were more likely to say well i mean this is the domestic worker, she's the proletariat, and you know she'll get what, what she's asking for. But after this law was introduced, the attitude changed. Now the domestic worker actually had to prove that she worked overtime and you know there was some sort of contract and it had to be a written contract that rarely happened because you know domestic workers were illiterate, sometimes they didn't know how this whole system functioned. So it actually worsened the state of domestic workers and the reason why this happened, I think, 
is, well, first of all, just the objective difficulties of regulating labor within the home. The 1920s was the time of high unemployment, particularly for women, because women were the first ones to be fired and the last ones to be hired. And there was a very high rate of unemployment among domestic workers. And initially, the state tried to discipline the employer, but then it became kind of obvious that the more you discipline the employer, the less likely the employer would want to officially register the domestic worker or the more likely uh, the family would be to just kick out the worker who has some sort of demands and would just hire a new girl from the village. So then the, the state kind of shifted the responsibility from the employers into domestic workers. So they had to, you know, work harder, demand less. And then there was also the reconceptualization of who the employees were. If in the earlier period, the idea was that it was the bourgeoisie, because there was quite a bit of research done in the 1920s, like what we would call sociological research, it became clear that most employers were actually uh, white collar workers or workers. In Moscow, they were like, um, I think they made up 80 something percent. So very few of the actual employers were the netmen. And so the rhetoric changes. Now the employers have domestic workers, not because they're spoiled, not because they have those lordly manners and their wives don't want to work, but because they need this, because their wives do work outside the home. But in general, again, it it can all be explained by this uh, paradox that I described earlier. The the Soviet state wanted to emancipate women, but they still saw domestic labor as women's work. They just had to replace those women that were more valuable working outside the home with less uh, qualified women. So exactly. So that paradox, I wanted to like come back a little bit to the actual alternative reimagining of like what, what could be done with that issue. So like, as you just repeated, there's the, there's the concept that like, there's a certain amount of housework, but we do want to emancipate women from it and free women from it. But then there's no reimagining of like how to redistribute it in terms of gender. So it's women again, who are going to come in and fill the space. But can you talk a little bit about what some of the proposed social, whatever visions are for how to collectivize um, housework and how to get it out of the individual's house or like what you mentioned um, as the cafeterias and the whatever. Yeah, some of those like examples. Well, there were several ways that people thought about it. Well, the most obvious way was to just communalize labor. For example, you have 10 families and instead of having 10 housewives cooking the soup, you can have them rotating these responsibilities or actually maybe hiring someone to do this work for everybody. This vision wasn't really realized, although some communes did try that, and there were actually buildings built without kitchens at the early stages. Another vision was to have, for example, factory kitchens. Some of those were actually built um, in the late 1920s, early 1930s, but that also didn't last for very long. Mostly because there weren't enough resources, but also people didn't want to eat out because the food wasn't very good. Although I have to say, all the factories, or I would say probably most of the factories, would have their own cafeterias, so workers would eat in those cafeterias. At lunch. At lunch, yes. So 
there is some something was being done to free women a little bit. But you also ha uh, have to remember that we're not talking only about cooking. You can't really like I do. I cook for the whole week and just shove it in the fridge. You can't do that. There are no <laughs> no fridges. You know you can't stick anything in a microwave. There is often no running water. You have to bring water. You have to bring wood. So housework was very taxing. And on top of that, you have children. And of course, in the early period, this there was uh, this vision among some of the Bolsheviks that actually family is not the best way to raise children. The state would do a better job. So conscious mothers and fathers should send their children to, um, well, I wouldn't call it an orphanage, but um, yeah, kind of a state, yeah, I guess child it was. House. Yeah, child house, I guess it was <laughs> an orphanage. So the state would do a better job because, you know, parents spoil and, you know, parents have this connections, mental connections with the past. They have been tainted by their life under Tsarism. They might pass it on to their children, their bourgeois ideas, petty bourgeois probably. So the state would do a better job. But then what happened was that, first of all, there weren't enough resources uh, and Children in those children's homes lived in very bad conditions. In the 1920s, you have a lot of homeless children wandering the streets, and that was an embarrassment to a socialist state. Children begging, thieves, you know, all kinds of juvenile crime. So tacitly, the state gave up on this idea, and by 1930s, especially in the late 1930s, you see the full rehabilitation of the family. So, and of course, that makes it even more important to have a woman who can raise children properly, that can either be a mother or a nanny. Can you then talk a little bit about the, like, figure of the peasant woman who's, like, this symbol of backwardness, yet at the same time she could be the nanny? So it's like this constant wave of people coming in and from the countryside to the cities, and there's the constant re generation of new labor like you were talking about so yeah can we talk can you talk about that figure a little yeah um so to a certain extent all domestic workers in, in the 1930s were reimagined as nannies and often when the discussion was about legitimacy of paid domestic labor the counter argument was like well someone has to raise the kids but of course there is a problem you want to raise the kids in a socialist way but then you bring in a peasant nanny who doesn't know anything about raising kids properly, who has no class consciousness, he can be religious, you know, can in generally be a bad influence on children. So in the mid-1930s, the state union develops this kind of professional minimum that domestic, a domestic worker had to pass. I don't know if that may actually makes sense in English, but so there is a, the idea is that they have to take a certain amount of classes uh, and then pass an, a qualification exam to be a qualified domestic worker. The plan was to have half of domestic laborers in the Soviet Union go through these exams. But in reality, I have no evidence that people actually did that. I think what actually happened is that unions would organize lectures on cooking or child raising or hygiene and 
domestic workers would come. And I have evidence from the archives that, you know, some of them did come and ask questions. But of course, many more didn't. So this, again, was a kind of a utopian project to re-educate, to professionalize domestic workers. You're thinking about Pushkin's nanny, who is the one. So I don't know if you've heard of that. So, you know, there's this great poet Pushkin, who especially becomes, well, he's always been a celebrity, but in the 1930s, he's kind of rediscovered as the great Russian poet. But the problem with Pushkin is that he's a nobleman. So where does he get this connection with the people? And the answer is from his peasant nanny, Arina Rodionovna. <laughs> and this was a very common trope in pre-revolutionary culture. You know, um, poets and writers idealized their nannies, you know, the simple women from the people. So on the one hand, you have that, nannies as the voice of the people. But on the other hand, you know, in the Soviet context, they are the backward peasant women. Right, who like can't be trusted to raise the new Soviet person. Yeah, that's an interesting contradiction, like this like pure connection to like a, whatever pure Russian soul or whatever from the nannies, but then at the same time, it's like it contradicts a little bit. They have the Russian soul, but they're ignorant. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> they don't know they have it. They don't know they have it yet. They yeah. have to become aware. This concept of unkept promises. It's something that we talk about a lot on the podcast in very different contexts from like planned architecture that never happens to planned Jewish homelands that never happen. There's always like a preparation for something in the future. And can you can you talk about the concept of the preparation for or like what the vision in the future of I guess in this case of domestic, well, you talked about specific things like what people, how people would have programs that exist, like having communal cooking or something, but like, what's the end goal? What's the end vision for, for women's roles? Yeah. The end goal is communism. And under communism, supposedly, you know, women and men would be free from household drudgery, they'll be enjoying themselves. Um, You know, I think Marx wrote something that in the morning I could be a fisherman, in the evening I can be a literary critic, you know, enjoying your labor, basically. So that was the idea. Of course, um, the socialist state was built on a utopia. But I think every culture has a little bit of that, you know. Americans have their own utopias about democracy. I'm sure other countries do as well. And I think what's important to note in this, you know, talking about domestic labor, I think it really shows how you can be really dedicated to equality and some sort of egalitarian project. But because you have a very gendered vision of the society, this gender bias undermines your equality. So the, originally, domestic service is associated with class. This is an equality between the poor and the rich. So we need to eliminate that. And there was the sincere desire to make people equal under socialism. But because you do not reflect enough how, you know, there's also a gender hierarchy that undermines this egalitarian project altogether. Okay. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. That's just, yeah, that's, I feel like a good also closing thought for this. What, Smith? Uh, no, I was just thinking about the, like, yeah, speculation of utopia and in different countries. And it's interesting because America's is like, 
it's much more individualistic and like the quote unquote American dream is something that we claim exists already and that it's just your duty as an individual to achieve it versus like the Soviet utopia was like, we're going to do all this stuff and then collectively we will reach this utopia that does not yet exist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. Like Ameri the American dream is achieved on an individual level, like or not achieved mostly. Right, and we claim that it already exists, even though, like, arguably it, it exists. Yeah, it's like this. Yeah, but I think the utopian part is that it can be achieved on an individual level. Right, right. That is kind of the liberal utopia. No, I don't really want to die. I only want to die in your eyes. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about discourses around aging in the post-Stalinist Soviet Union. I want to wander through the night As a figure in the distance, even to my own eye Have you ever rented a room? Have you even ever Let you see the river move But now that your evil dreams came through There on your face A row of teeth will come to a place I know you laughed when I left But you really only hurt yourself And you see your curtain Yeah, so we're so we want to transition from the discussion of domestic of gender and domestic labor to your work on the history of aging. So can you yeah introduce that a little? Um, sure. Well, so my project on domestic service was my PhD dissertation. I'm trying to turn it into a book, and it's really hard to be working on the same thing for so many years. So I needed a distraction. So I started. <laughs> working on this second project with a colleague of mine um, and a good friend of mine, Maria Ramashova. She's from Piram, from my home city. And the second project deals with retired activists in the 50s and 60s, mostly in the 60s. So, you know, when you think about this project of building socialism, there, there were different women involved. I don't know how you're familiar with uh, classical Soviet literature, but there's a very famous novel, How the Steel Was Tempered. And there's this character, Pavel Karchagin, who is this uh, Civil War hero, and he suffered all kinds of ailments that he pulled through. Really, he contributed to the building of the socialist state. But our question was, what happened to this generation of Pavel Karchagin once they become old? And we were thinking about not the first Soviet generation that has been studied a lot. And by the first Soviet generation, people usually mean those who were born in the Soviet Union kind of came of age in the 30s. We were more interested in the generation of builders of socialism who were born around 1900 and were involved in this, you know, first stage of creation of the Bolshevik state. And so 
they all retired in mass after 1956, the introduction of this universal pension system, which wasn't quite universal, it was quite discriminatory, but it was it was the first time when uh, Soviet urban dwellers could retire, not because they couldn't work anymore physically, but because they reached a certain age. It was 60 for men and 55 for women. And so we were wondering how these people who had spent their life uh, building the state and really dedicated to this to the socialist project. So we're talking not about all elderly people in general, but just this uh, particular group of activists, really dedicated people. So how did they reinvent themselves after they retired? Because labor is such an important part, it's a central component of your identity. And the way the Soviet life is structured is structured around work. Even your party cell is attached to where you work. So we were interested in, you know, how elderly people make sense of themselves and in general how aging was understood. I had a question about, well, I was trying to connect the, like, concept of the discourse on, like, joy and emotions uh-huh. and what kind of emotions elderly are sort of, like, officially allowed to express. But, yeah, like, what the prescribed emotional discourse is, because because that's one of the chapters that we read, mm-hmm. right? I, I guess I would like you to just sort of mm. re- summarize it a little bit. I don't have a, like, pointed question about it. <laughs> So uh, Maria Ramashova and I wrote this piece for an edited volume, The Many Faces of Socialism, that deals on the uh, late Soviet discourse on aging and particularly its kind of emotional component. We looked at publication aimed at elderly people and the central idea of this publication was that Soviet people age prematurely. So when you become old at the age of 70, that's premature. You have to live 120, Jewish style, I guess. (laughs) And how do you avoid this premature aging? And of course, there were many components. You have to be active. You have to do this and that. But most importantly, you have to be positive. And there was this very central emphasis on cheerfulness and, you know, just being positive and doing things that would make you happy like working that's of course you know labor brings joy being part of a collective also you know having a family and for women it was important to be involved in raising your grandchildren so this was this constant emphasis that you know it's your responsibility to be joyful although at the same time the state has done everything for you to be joyful so you know We're just living in this very happy state. And it's important to understand the context. We're talking about the Khrushchev period. So now the dark times of Stalin is over. Um, We now need to get back to Lenin's path. And it's all hyper-optimistic. But it absolutely leaves no room for any kind of, you know, sad thoughts. Any kinds of anxieties about growing old. Any kinds of anxieties about, you know, becoming physically weak or isolated, having your peers die. So none of them exist. And in the last section of the chapter, we deal with a mature poetry written by one of the elderly activists who tries really, really hard, you know, to feel this joy. And it's getting harder and harder for her because she's getting older and older, she's getting sicker. But you can see in her work, in this, in this poems that she wrote to herself, how she really, as a good communist, how she really struggles 
to you know look on the bright side all the time. And actually, what we see that in the later period, say in the 70s, after Khrushchev is ousted and we have Brezhnev, there is more and more understanding. There's a bigger spectrum of emotions suggested uh, for elderly people in official publications. So I think the Khrushchev era was this very special time of like hyper positive emotions. How directly connected is that type of like ideology or discourse to the sort of obvious giant elephant in the room, which is Stalin and trauma and like the collective trauma and like the fact that, I mean, so the collective trauma of the war and the 30s, but then like the concept that Khrushchev is like, you know, he has his secret speech and the denouncing Stalin and all of that past. And so, like, how connected are these two forces, the denouncing Stalin in the past and the, like, hyper joy? I have my doubts about the concept of collective trauma. I'm not sure you can actually... I mean, I understand there is trauma on the individual level. I'm just not sure there's a thing called collective trauma. So, but I wouldn't go into that. But what I actually think is that under Khrushchev, one of the central tasks of the regime was to to remain stable without the repressions. Like, how are you going to manage the state if you don't want to uh, randomly arrest and kill people? And I think one of the ways that uh, Khrushchev tried to do that was to make uh, the Soviet society more comfortable emotionally, just more pleasant, more joyful. I mean, of course, you know, joyfulness was a big thing under Stalin, but under Khrushchev is more joyful in a humane way. You get your joys not only to from um, from labor feats in the factory, but also like small joys uh, from your family or you know hanging out with your colleagues. But in general, this idea that life is pleasant and emotionally comfortable. Wait, I, I'm actually kind of curious why. Do you have your doubts about collective trauma? Well, <laughs> I'm not an expert on trauma, and I'm trauma not an whole, yeah. <laughs> expert on memory. But I think the concept of trauma is about individual experience and some sort of psychological development that happens inside one's brain. I don't understand where this collective brain is located. Where is this collective psyche? How can it exist outside one's body? So. I don't know. This is why I find this idea of collective trauma, trauma kind of problematic. So do you generally think that like collective emotions aren't a, a real thing? You know, I didn't think about that in those terms, but I don't know. I just think that people experience things as individuals. And if trauma is something, what is trauma? I guess something you can't talk about or like what, what are the definitions of trauma? Well, it's not an emotion. So yeah, yeah, it's not, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So, so it's not joy. I mean, there's also the difference between like, like discourses on something and then the actual experience of it. So like, obviously there can be a collective memory or memorialization, you know, like that's what we, that, that is handed down. So I guess like the question of people's individual experiences of what they're remembering, that's, yeah, that's a separate issue and the concept of like whether that could be collective is definitely questionable you see what I'm saying Smith 
Yeah, no, no, I, I definitely understand it. I guess I just like haven't ever questioned it before and just have been like, yep, collective trauma, collective X is a thing. So I hadn't, I hadn't. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think people definitely talk about collective trauma in terms of Russia a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Rolling your All eyes. All <laughs> our life is a non-going trauma and drama and whatever. But, <laughs> yeah. But as I said, I'm no expert. Like, I don't do memory studies, but I've always wondered how this works. You know, psychoanalytical categories understand how they work on an individual level, but where is this collective psyche located? Yeah. But, you know, maybe right. I'm wrong. I, I'm curious, like reading this chapter, um, the Young Minds, Young Bodies one, I kind of was like, oh, wait, did the Soviets like invent or build upon this thing of like p- the power of positive thinking, which to me feels like maybe a very like, I don't know, 80s or 90s, like New age-y. Um, n- not well, new agey, but also combined with uh, like motivational speakers. <laughs> that sort of thing but I I guess I don't really have a question about that but I guess what I am curious about is was this you know focus on positive thinking was it really targeted towards the aging process like was that the focus of it or was it a more general thing where like because because what you talk about a lot is like oh you have to have good interactions with the people at work or you'll get stressed and then you'll age faster or or was there any attention paid just to like oh you need to have good interactions with people because then you'll feel better and there's no like end goal for why that's a good thing well this uh, particular discourse was very biological so a lot of those brochures would you know explain in a very pavlovian way you know how there is the stimuli Stimuli? What's the word? Stimulus. Stimulus. Stimuli. Yeah. And then you have these certain extractions and they affect your body in a certain way. And then you age or you don't age. But I think this whole positivity thing was bigger than just a discourse for elderly people. I'm now uh, working on a collection of teenage letters that teenage girls in the mid-1960s wrote to a a morality speaker. This guy who he gave lectures about love and relationship between boys and girls in schools. And so I was looking into this discourse on love and particularly teenage love. And what I found there, it was all to be very elevated and pleasant. So you have friendship that then kind of involves into love and then you get married and there was absolutely no room for heartache, you know, with all, you know, all those troubles you can have in a relationship. So I think that made it also difficult for the teenagers who were having those troubles to recognize themselves in those official stories of teenage romance. So I think this emotional regime uh, of positivity put, I mean, it was elevating, but it also put a lot of pressure on people. But I think I also want to address your comment about how this very mind reminds you of, uh, you know, the power of positive thinking, which we associate with Western societies. A lot of the stuff that I study, you know, I, I study Soviet history, but a lot of the stuff that I study is usually associated with the West, with capitalism, for example, domestic service. One of the reasons there are no studies of domestic service or hardly any under socialism, because it's kind of an intellectual blind spot. We're also concerned how, you know, well, if we're sociologists, we're concerned how this um, neoliberalism contributes to that, the, you know, the global care chain and things like that. And if you're a historian, you look at, 
you know, inequality under capitalism. So socialism remains this kind of uh, implicit alternative. So this is why it's a blind spot. In my studies of elderly people, I examined the Soviet context uh, concept of active aging. And active aging, again, is a very contemporary thing. It's con- uh, very much associated with neoliberalism. It's being promoted right now at the highest level possible. But, you know, the, the Soviets had their own concept of active aging. So I think that, that what makes my work interesting. So you see those things you usually associate with say, capitalism, and you see them in a socialist society as well, and then you want to question why this happens. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have, like, one more question about aging. Do you have anything else, Lily? Um, about aging? Yeah. I think my question is, like, sort of ignorant, so I don't and know. And I'm ignorant now? It's, well, go ahead. Okay. I, I guess I'm, like, kind of curious about the formation of the, like, babushka as a... <laughs> cultural icon (laughs) and I'm wondering was there ever any sort of like state policy or propaganda that led to kind of the stereotypes that people perceive about babushkas well in the early Soviet period as you say babushka but in Russian we actually say babushka so I tried to teach her and she (laughs) didn't learn (laughs) I know. I don't. I don't understand emphasis. I can't Babushka. do it. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, Babushka. Yeah, yeah, Babushka. So, old people were a bad influence. So even parents could be a bad influence. But of course, elderly people in the early Soviet discourse were, you know, the conservative force. But when we move into, particularly in the Khrushchev period, you have a a different picture. First of all, those women that are Babushkas now, they were, I don't know, maybe Civil War veterans. They were part of this uh, generation of founding fathers and mothers who can actually connect today's generation that don't know anything about the revolution, they haven't experienced it. So they, 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 would, they were the connection between the present and the glorious past. So now they're carriers of this revolutionary tradition. And you can see representations of that. Um, there's a Soviet movie, I don't know when it actually came out, 60s or 70s, I think 60s. It's called Astarozhna Babushka, it's like Watch Out Babushka. And the story is that there is this young girl, I think she's trying to build a, like a youth club or something with her young colleagues and nothing works. So her grandmother's like, let me show you how it's done. And she invites all her friends who are now retired and they build this club in like in a few days. And they're the example. But of course, there is still this image of her babushka that spoils. She pampers the child. He becomes a sissy. That's why, you know, you need a father figure. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much to Alyssa for coming to Lily's in-house studio and talking to us. This was a very good conversation, I think. you can, If you're interested in her other work um, and want to follow along with the research she's doing, you can check her out on the European University at St. Petersburg website. Just Google her there. And as always, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Telegram and Arena at She's in Russia. If you have any questions about Russia, give us a call at plus one, three, four, seven, two, nine, two, seven, one, two, six, or leave us a message on Skype if you are 
not located in the U.S. Subscribe to our monthly image-based newsletter, and we will see you next week. Woo, pew, 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 okay. pew. Hello, darkness, my old friend, 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 friend. Yeah. My best testing mechanism.